0: Hi, this is Zoe Routh. Welcome back to the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. If you're a first time listener, so happy to have you here. And if you're a return listener, thank you so much for listening into each episode that we produce each week. Uh, I'm thrilled to present this series on points of view. I've been learning heaps about uh, different angles of seeing and being in the world, and I hope you have too. And today we have Lynn Kazaley. She is an international speaker, author, and master facilitator. She really is extraordinary about getting people to process different points of view and bring them together on a journey. And I've had the great fortune of training with her uh, and studying her facilitation methodologies and being a colleague and a friend too. So apart from that, she is the author of six books, the last of which ish, The problem with our pursuit of perfection and the life-changing practice of good enough is what we're chatting about today. So we're going to take a deep dive into perfectionism and how we don't necessarily need to go there and what's a better alternative. Let's get into it. Oh, so excited to speak with you on this delightful morning about your latest book and your journey so far. So, Lynn, so great to have you. I want to know, really, like you started off as a lecturer on communications, then you've become a global speaker and author of six amazing books. Tell me, how did you go from that? How did you go from lecturing into being a global Globe Trotter, can you Ooh. be a global Globe Trotter? Yeah, <laughs> sounds
1: good to me. I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, my background was in communications, so I some of my earlier job roles were doing the comms for for like hospitals and public health, government, education, training, health, um, arts. And it was from that experience that I then got into some lecturing. So the, you know, universities love it when you've got some practical expertise to add to the curriculum. And I would try and make what can be boring lectures into something a little more interesting. And so I started honing my facilitation skills with students in large lecture theatres. It could be 100 students in there and then in small tute groups with maybe 12 to 20 students And I was always driven to not have them zoning out, you know, to not have them disengaged. And so I just found that as a a real challenge every day. That's your scorecard, right? It's like, did they disengage or did they pay attention? That's right. And so over time I was using all these communication techniques that I knew as well as delivering the curriculum and uh, had, yeah, really enjoyed that. And then at some point you go, yeah, that's enough. I want to do something else. And so I started my own business around about that same time.
0: How did you get into the agile space? Because you've written you've written one at least one book on, yeah. on agile. It's called Agile-ish, isn't it? Yes, yes. It and then Ish came after that. So, what? How did you go from like being a uni lecturer into doing being
1: agile guru? Well, more about that learning, learning and development. So, I was uh, working in a business where uh, helping them with their learning and development, and I was working with one of the project managers, and he said, I'd love you to come and see what my team's doing. So I went and had a look, and it was in this separate room, kind of glass fishbowl, and I went in, I wrote about this in Ish, and there was uh, they had a bell on the desk, and they were dinging the bell every time that they'd released some software code into the company's website.
0: Oh, like Pavlov's and, dog? Yeah, a bit <laughs> like that,
1: and a reward, you know, like a shout the bar or... Um, ding, ding, we've done something. And it, and it was from seeing a team deliver something rapidly. Uh, I just went, what the hell is going on there? And I want to know about it. And so that was probably 15 or so years ago where I first learned and was exposed to agile. And then I found that it really integrated well with my communications expertise and facilitation. And all of these pieces start to fit together.
0: Oh, I love and, it. I love that picture. The, the only picture I have in my mind right now is this like glassed in cubicle of these IT rats. And they've, they've released something, they press the bell, ding, ding, ping. ding. And then like the hot dog tray comes. In. <laughs> they get to eat hot dogs. I don't know why hot dogs comes up. I mean, IT and hot dogs. That's sort of my brain producing that connection, but that's sort of what's coming up. But I love it, um, how it's the, the quick rapid fire iteration mm, and the, mm. the high engagement. And yes. how do you actually get people interested in each other and the project? Yes, yes. Um, so those were like, that's a communication and facilitation and then agile all mm. coming together in one mm. foray. What was your biggest insight as you, as you went through these little iterations of your
1: own career? that we are often the thing that's holding us back, or we can be the thing that's holding a team back. Uh, We think we might be creating wonderful conditions and a great environment for people, but it's not until you see a really high performing team and what they do each day that you realize, oh, maybe I'm relying on some old ways of working instead of looking at some newer ways of working.
0: Oh, I love that. So there's two questions I have out of what you just said. First one is, How does the leader, which I'm guessing you were inferring how we hold people back, how
1: do we or the leader get in the way of teams producing great results? Something I learned in improvisation some years ago, which was about how we can either censor ourselves and not not say what we would like to say, or the reverse, we too tightly control uh, an environment because we want it to go a particular way. And so I think these two things are going on all the time, that we, we probably censor ourselves and don't say what we can or what we should, but at the same time, we're holding on very tightly to a desired outcome or our mental picture of the way something should be. So I think this is what leaders uh, are often struggling with, this perhaps inner dialogue, but also an outer, outer control.
0: I think that's a really insightful observation. And I think it comes back to the grand narrative about what a leader is supposed to do, which is you're supposed to lead the way and have the direction and have the vision, which is horse pooey. Um, well, in contemporary leadership, it is anyway. Yes. Like, I think it's so, what a refreshing idea, a rewarding <laughs> idea to have somebody say, yes, this is where we're going. And the the certainty that's involved with somebody's standing up and saying, follow me is what I think we would love to do. But the reality of today's, Global, connected, and volatile, fluid environment means that's impossible. No one has all the right answers. No. So when you talk about like, you don't really know what you're missing out until you see a high performing team. And you've seen a high performing team. Is it what you just described? It's the guys in in the IT bubble (laughs) ringing bells, or what else looks like a high performing team?
1: Uh, There's a lot of things to be learned from the agile way of working, and you don't have to be an agile team to to adopt some of these things. But I love seeing the way a smaller group can be working on something. So that the term or phrase that some software developers use is mob programming. So there's a bunch of people working on something rapidly. You imagine like ants or insects, you know, furiously working on something, but only for a limited period of time. So there's this intense activity and everyone working on it and then there's a release of that. That pressure and, and everyone goes about their own their own thing again. So, it kind of started with what's called pair programming. That is, two software developers working together, uh, one working on the screen or on the keyboard, and the other acting like a coach and a, and a collaborator, not a corrector, but someone who's you know working together in a pair. So, this pair programming has really blossomed in some organizations to be mob programming and that's that's amazing to see the energy that people bring to you know rapidly work on something solve it fix it and then move away from that and do you know go back to some other stuff highly energizing
0: well it sounds perfect for extroverts i'm wondering about <laughs> introverts who prefer to put their head down and mull through their own processes how does it work for them in that context
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of the the technology field has been characterized by a lot of people who like to work alone or like to think alone. And that's the beauty of just having a burst of time where people come together, knowing it's not forever. We're not all (laughs) going to work like this forever. It's too intense. So I like the idea of there's a constraint or a boundary. We work in that. And then one of the techniques I use in facilitation is applying some pressure and then releasing the pressure. And so it's the release of pressure that makes, I believe, introverts feel okay, that it's it's only for a short period of time, I can do that, and then I get to be alone or go back into my shell later.
0: I think that's a really wonderful uh, technique, actually, put on the
1: pressure, release the pressure, as opposed to just put the pressure on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is some of that newer way of thinking rather than uh, the intense leadership or the intense control but rather constraints that people can work in and be free in that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So Ish, your latest book. Yes. Yes. And you talk about being a reformed perfectionist. Mm. (laughs) So what happened? You went from perfectionist to Ishmeister.
1: What happened in there? I think they had been a bit of ish throughout my whole life. So my dad is quite ingenious, an engineer, and he's uh, always looking for and finding cool solutions to things. So I think I grew up in quite an, uh, an environment of ingenuity and my mother's quite the performer, not on stage, uh, but within the family. So I think I've grown up with this idea that you can perform and make shit up you know, <laughs> and together it'll be okay. Then coupled with learning about Agile and doing some work in improvisation and facilitating, these are all highly uncertain environments, which kind of replicate the workplace today. You know, it replicates the world. Highly uncertain. How do you thrive in that? And one of the ways is by experimenting and trying stuff out. So I'd accidentally ished the first time that I noticed it years ago, starting up my business and just, whipping up some quick business cards, you know, nothing flash, and realised, oh, wow, you know, that'll do. They'll do the job. And they did do the job. And then as time went on, then, then I got something more serious, more beautifully designed. Funny, things have gone the other way now. Business cards seem to be less, less um, you know, less important or less required. But the thing is we put in so much worry and effort and attention on things that really doesn't require that much attention we can get away with going for near enough or good enough on a lot of things
0: now i can hear all my perfectionist clients freaking out over that you know it's like near <laughs> enough close enough that just sounds sloppy and irresponsible mm, mm. so i'm guessing that's one of the one of the resistance that people have to yeah. this kind of principle it's like you, you're asking me to be sloppy instead of pedantic
1: yeah yeah what, what's your <laughs> how do you respond to them because i mean this is you had your own inner dialogue about mm, this as well mm. well we can't be pedantic on everything and and already you know today people would have ished on things they say yeah that'll do that's near enough that's good enough on things like breakfast or what their hair looked like <laughs> or or uh, the parking spot they chose or um, you know, the time they got into work. So we kind of do ish anyway. And it's it's our own standards we put on ourselves when we say, oh, no, you know, I won't tolerate anything less than perfection. I'm like, well, excuse me, you already have. So <laughs> be aware of the, the times that you have ished and have a look at where else you can, where it won't matter. So I say there's plenty of reasons and places where we still want precision accuracy 100 percent thoroughness the thing here is knowing which ones deserve that attention and accuracy and completeness and the ones we can let go
0: well that that's the million dollar question right so if somebody's a perfectionist they apply that aspiration or standard to everything how do they then choose what's good enough near enough and carry on and which one's like no this is we need to get this right how do you know I mean you have a formula in your
1: book about this right so
0: what are your general principles
1: there's some things about looking at whether you need to go for higher standards and I wouldn't say perfection because we can't achieve it but think about the higher standard that you need on something is it about time as in duration? or is it about the quality of something? I was working with a manufacturing team the other day and looking at lean principles in their, uh, on their shop floor, but also looking at how they can be more lean in their offices and in outside of the factory. And so we were looking for places where, not, not where we could cut corners, but where we could reduce waste. And reduce waste isn't just uh, recycling and reducing and reusing, it's also the waste of effort. You know, the waste of our effort that we put into things, the longer hours we put in for not great return, the extra meetings we hold that may not be required. So I'm suggesting there's ish opportunities, not just on, you know, perfection, trying to go for the highest standards on everything, but sometimes we can go for near enough on a range of things, like our presentation that we're working on or a blog that we're writing I wouldn't want a surgeon to go for near enough or good enough. You know, I want them to go for their highest level of precision, their standard. So a lot of this is about what is the standard? And this is a thing we often do not know or define what the standard is. It lives up here in our mind. We've got this imagined expectation of the standard or the outcome we're going for. So I believe we need to articulate that, define it, and then we know when we'll reach it. I think that's
0: really helpful. And I was thinking about this in the context of of diet and body image. You know, there's this pervasive thing in our culture, even though it's being challenged, it's being challenged now, about what is the highest level and criteria for that. You know, it can only eat lean and clean and yeah. green. And uh, there's been a bit of a backlash around that, you know, the 80-20 rule, like 80% clean and green, 20% whatever-ish. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's taken sort of going to the extreme of X amount of body fat and X amount of diet things to people to rebel against that. And I guess, was that sort of your experience? Not, not in the diet world, but in the work world? Like you go to the extremes and go, hang on a minute, this is, this is a bit too intense. and I'm frying myself. There's got to be a better mm-hmm. way. Was that sort of the oscillation that you experienced?
1: Yeah, not only in my work world, but working with other people and seeing how much wasted effort they were putting in. Because as you rightly mentioned, the 80-20 principle, right, the Pareto effect, it's a principle that applies. And I reckon we forget about this. And so we put in, all we have to do is put in a measly 20% effort to get this incredible 80% return. But a lot of the time we're faffing about with 80% effort and only getting this measly 20% return. So to identify what are the high-value tasks, uh this links back to agile ways of working, which is deliver value to the customer as soon as possible. Identify what are the highest-value tasks that this team or this group or organisation needs to focus on. And this kind of happens with us, you know, the productivity movement says you know, choose three big tasks for the day or start with your biggest or most difficult or most important task. So this is the 80-20 principle. You only have to do a few things that will get an incredible return rather than faffing about on all of these other things that really don't amount to much.
0: Yeah, asking why it's important is part mm. of that criteria. Exactly.
1: What, yeah. are we trying, what are we really trying to achieve here? Yes, yes. And I think this is where that, um, you know, when you bring people together, say at the start of a project or kicking off something, it's really useful to work out, well, what are we focusing on? What is the priority? Where are we putting our attention? Otherwise, there's great uncertainty and people continue to work really hard towards deadlines, not quality uh, or defined standards. You know, if someone says, oh, when's the presentation due? Oh, next Tuesday. So people work diligently between now and next Tuesday, sometimes taking up all the hours they can in that time. But maybe they've already achieved what's required for that presentation after three or four hours work. And instead they've done 48 hours work, a lot of which may be totally unnecessary.
0: That's amazing. I'm I'm excited about the liberation of all that wasted time.
1: Yes, it is. This is what people are saying, they're reading Ish and then they're sending me messages going, oh, this incredible weight's off my shoulder of this weight of expectation and and unwritten standards and the expectations we have of ourselves, the expectations we think society has of us, the expectations we put on others, these weigh people down and drive us to do more, 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 more when more, more, more ain't better, better, better so the idea of going for perfection most of us have got a little bit of a perfectionist trait in us so it's not uh, it's not just some people and not others most of us have around certain things Uh, I like to talk about the stacking the dishwasher Uh, you know people will (laughs) say there's a certain way it has to be done and uh, and that that standard or expectation they have but if If we can define what it is the standard that we're going for, then as soon as we reach that, it doesn't matter how long that takes, you know, it might only take half an hour or 15 minutes or three days. But unless we know what it is we're going for, we can fall into this dangerous trap of thinking it's not good enough yet. And we actually don't know what good enough is. Oh,
0: yeah, that's right. So I noticed myself just yesterday, actually, having an ish moment,
1: yeah. <laughs> an ish
0: insight moment, where I was editing a page on my website, and yeah, I, and I realized it had taken me ages to get this page up in the first place, right? And and I thought I had to get it per- perfect, perfect, <laughs> before you published it. And then you know, a month later, I'm going back and adding stuff in anyway. But my whatever perfect was at the time was never going to be the end product. And it's like, oh what if I hadn't stressed so much and put up what I had without the stress? And then as I kept working on the content and the purpose of this particular program and let it feed back into that page with the overall objective of being of service to the people I'm working for, then wouldn't that have been better than delaying the start of a project? Because did I get it? Did I nail the ish thing?
1: (laughs) That's it. So what you're talking about there is incremental work, which is let's work in small Packages of work, that is, let's identify the stuff that's valuable and get that done, and then work in iterations. So, whatever we've already done, let's improve on that over time. And uh, this happens with our devices, you know, they're constantly being automatically updated with the latest version of an application software. So, we're quite used to now living in a world of increments and iterations. Uh, a lot of startups will put out their minimum viable product, the thing that's just got the basic features on to see if it's got leaks. And we can work like this every day of our lives in every project is just start working on the things that have the highest value. It's way more efficient, reduces stress, makes people feel better about the progress they're making uh, and it helps people get stuff done. That's why those software developers were dinging the bells so often is they'd worked out their, what's called a backlog. You know, they'd worked out their list of things that they that were the high value tasks that they were working on. And then as they're ticking each one off, ding, you know, and it totally inspired the team. They're like, yeah, we're getting this stuff, the important stuff done, tick, ding, next. That's what a high performing team looks like. They're getting things done, the valuable stuff done.
0: Mm, and it starts with defining what is the valuable stuff as opposed to this long laundry list of, of to-dos, which aren't filtered.
1: That's right. And then Mm. you can ish the rest. (laughs) (laughs) relax, you know?
0: And I love how you ished your book ish as well. Like you talk about that in your book that this, I think the, I don't know what version I have of
1: the book. Do you know what version or has there been another version since you had? printed? No, the the main um, publicly available version is, is iteration number five. So the first one was pretty crappy looking. <laughs> it still had a, a similar cover on the front, but it, it was just a bit messy and disorganized and then there was iteration 2 and then iteration 3 I really put out there a lot wider a lot of people bought that book and I remember getting a review on uh, on Goodreads and this woman said, "Oh my god, this book is just like a train of con- you know stream of consciousness." um it's quite <laughs> disorganized and um uh what else i hope she said i hope it's still to be edited and i replied like totally you know that it's <laughs> i've put it out there it's imperfect and i can't sit here and profess to battle perfectionism with increments and iterations and then not do it myself did part of you just feel a bit wounded with that criticism i just have to know um part of me did but I also would say, I know, you know, the important thing is I know what's going on. I know what I was doing. I know what, what the iteration was. So Do I did th- respond to her comment and say, yeah, you're right, it was an early draft, got lots of feedback, now we're up to iteration five. Have you checked that out? Let me know your address and I'll send you one. <laughs>
0: Do you think people feel uh ripped off? I mean, I don't know. This is what's going on in my brain, yeah, you yeah. know. If if I bought a draft and it was never going to be like is that wasted money? Like do, do I feel like I have as a reader would I feel peeved at that? Or do you feel a sense of responsibility to your the people who purchase your book to have it in better format? Like how do you how do you talk about that in your own mind?
1: Um well they all got um perhaps unexpectedly, they received a copy of the, the newest finished final edition. So oh. everybody who'd, <laughs> who'd bought it, um, one day they would have got home and opened a package and there was the latest book saying, you know, thanks for your support and here's the <laughs> here's oh, the well. iteration five. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and a couple of people said, oh, I read the second one that you've sent me and I'd read the earlier edition and, wow, you know, the next one's even better. I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what iteration is about, you know. And if I was a perfectionist, I would still be working on that first edition and not putting it out there.
0: Yeah.
1: Lots of us have got ideas for books and books are just one metaphor of projects and putting things out there. But we've got lots of ideas that never see the light of day because we're still working on them and it's our own battle around the self-worth that we have that what we've done is not yet good enough but it is, it is way good enough.
0: Well, yeah, that, that's what it sounds like to me. You know, even though you got that cop, that criticism from edition number three from the lady who said, stream of consciousness, blog. One person, one person, you know. Uh, well, she and- still read it and got value out of it. She just <laughs> didn't like its format. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and and I can focus on that or on the hundreds of people who've been in touch and said this, reading this book has, you know, released amazing pressure or I read it in one sitting or I read it over the weekend and now I've given it to, you know, gifted it on to someone. So these are I think these are the things you hope that you'll create something that actually lands with people. So that makes me feel way better than what one person thought about iteration number three.
0: Yeah. Um And it's also this whole notion of has helped liberate me from the drama of typos. Oh, yeah. Yes, (laughs) true, true. Because I know typos can really irritate a lot of readers. Yeah. And uh, I've published three books as well on
1: each one. There's Mm. freaking typos in them. Of course, (laughs) there are. You know, that's just that's just the way it is. So you can put out another iteration and fix those typos if you want. Yeah. Well, the typos will definitely want to fix them.
0: But I think what's more important and what I've come to in terms of ishing my way through this Mm -hmm. is realizing once you have a book out in the world or whatever piece of work out in the world is that it's a starting point and it will serve people for where they are then because it's me who I was then. And then I can come back to that and offer more value. So I'm looking at my three books and looking forward to the next iteration of each of them because I can add even more richness and depth. But it didn't, in doing that, it doesn't sort of discount the first edition either. No,
1: no, not at all. And I'm not at all. There's um, the agileish ish book. So i got quite a few printed and there's a shocking, glaring error in there. There's uh, I lead into a quotation and I say, you know, such and such said blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then the quote's stop. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a big gap of white space on the page. Don't know what happened. Got deleted somehow. And do you know of all the people who've bought that and been gifted that book, do you know how many people alerted me to that problem? None. <laughs> None. So people like have skimmed over it or not read that bit or they've got the book intending to read it and this reveals what's known as the spotlight effect is that we are way more worried about things than other people are. We think the spotlight is on us all the time, and it's just not. That's hilarious,
0: and you know where that kind of mistake can actually be a wonderful thing. Um, I'm going to have to go dig it out of Facebook. I saw it by uh, a post by Valerie Koo said, "I thought it was an urban myth, but then I saw it in an actual bookstore. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the name of the book, but it was by a famous international author. And there's a typo on the cover, and (gasps) it's
1: yeah, good one.
0: (laughs) And it's like the subtitle has got the the so something the the (laughs) love it. I know and and. (laughs) Rather than being more like now that if you can find that edition, that is like a finder's keeper's collector's item because yes. it's such a marvel. Okay. Thing. So I, I don't think you can do those things deliberately. They're kind of like Easter eggs in films, right? Like <laughs> finding that little or the coffee cup that had happened in game of thrones. Game of hear thrones. About oh yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so these become cult. you know, it, it is the imperfection. So this is why perfectionists. it's like, it's okay because it's actually the imperfection. That people warm to, and I think that TV show called Nailed It hashtag Nailed It, where people, you know, cook and bake, and the entertainment is in us seeing not belittling people, but us in seeing and recognizing and identifying with the human side of other people, and it's uh, that's called the pratfall effect, right? That if we show a little bit of our humanity, a little bit of our imperfection people actually perceive us more highly so the pratfall effect you know like a pratfall falling on your your behind uh, that if we sh- have a little slip up like a typo or we stumble with something that enables us to be more highly you know revered or respected by people rather than us trying to control and make everything perfect that we can relax spotlight effect people aren't paying as much attention as we think and the pratfall effect, we can let imperfections out there because people perceive us better when we do. Ah, this thing works in reverse, right? We think we have to show ourselves perfectly. We don't. We don't at all. It's working against us. We need to let some more of our humanity, more of our imperfections out there.
0: I think that that's the Japanese principle of wabi-sabi when it talks about artisan craftsmanship is that if if something is produced and then gets a little chip in it, it's lovingly repaired with gold or whatever. And this sort of element of wabi-sabi, this it's lived an item and it's unique and, and it's lived a little, makes it far more valuable than, as you said, the perfectly etched whatever thing. That's right.
1: Thing. And so I refer to wabi-sabi and, and kintsugi or gilded joinery in, in ish about how that imperfection is, is held up and it's more greatly revered because of what it is. And, and humans are like this, right? We've all got scars and wounds and things that make us who we are. We don't have to show them all, but we become better, you know, more higher valued, prized things and people uh, with those imperfections rather than, you know, trying to avoid them.
0: I think there's going to be a balance though because i'm just imagining if you if you have stuff up after stuff up and and you can tip over the point where it's from charming to being seen as incompetent and i think that's where people might get worried that any slip up then shows incompetence so how, how do you measure that like how do you know that you've moved past the threshold of being perceived as incompetent to competent and charming <laughs>
1: because well that, that crap effect uh, the downside of that is, if people already think you're a bit of a fool, uh, when you mess things up, they just it just confirms. They go, yeah, they are a fool. But if you're, you know, if you're generally trying to do your best, not perfect, but if you're trying to do, you know, the best you can in the time you've got available and the standard you're going for, people want you to do well. You know, people will perceive you well. And then when you mess up a little bit, they go, oh, you know, they're human. Wow, I like them more. So for most of us, it works in this way. For people like, I don't know, Donald Trump or political leaders that we don't think much about, so our perception of them is lower, when they do mess up, we just think less and less and less and less of them. It's a bit of a confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah. So the pratfall effect works when we have a kind of neutral feeling about someone and then they make an error or show an imperfection, we like them better.
0: I'm wondering if in our work to help increase the likelihood that it's going to be the pratfall effect instead of a negative aspect is if we state our intention up front to be of service and to that we're doing our best in service or do you think that's just sort of i think it's a negative approach or what do you think um
1: do you mean like letting people know what it what it was we're going for what it is we're going for before we start on something or
0: Uh, yeah well I'm trying to get to like how do we position ourselves to avoid being to the confirmation bias that we're incompetence and setting ourselves up for success like people generally let's say splitting in front of an audience Mm. people generally want the speaker
1: to do well they sure do so how do do you
0: how do you signal whether it's a speaking engagement or any kind of piece of work that you're doing that I'm giving it a red hot go how do you signal that do you you state it up front or no I don't
1: think so you get on and you do it and I think you see this daily when speaking get up and the first thing they say is an apology so they say oh sorry you know this isn't as well prepared as as I want it to be or not (laughs) not good right at any time people apologize at the start of a presentation well the pratfall effect has now worked in reverse they were neutral and now they've kind of lowered their own value so shut up you know even if you when people say oh i'm sorry i've got a bit of a cold today or i'm not feeling very well or i think no zip it don't say it just get on and do your thing no one needs to know i remember having to do a presentation i had a shocking toothache and i started and kept going and then and i'm thinking i've got to say something and i didn't i just say no just keep going just keep going. And then afterwards, uh, they said, oh, are you staying for lunch? I said, no, I'm going to the dentist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so people kind of don't need to know that. Don't need to know. some. There's some of our inner fears, our inner workings. Yeah, and okay. and it, again, it's another sign of perfectionism. So uh, to make current,
0: excuses for why it's not perfect yeah, before you even yeah. start.
1: So therefore, I'm, I'm kind of dismissing my own value before you've even had a chance to to take me at face value. It's also
0: when you see speakers get up saying, oh, oh I'm really nervous. It's like, oh. Zip it, don't say, it. that's right. So like, People uh, will tell anyway, so you don't need to flag it. And actually, I think this is how it works with the nervousness thing. If people see a speaker who's nervous, they, they feel compassion, empathy for them.
1: Yay, this um, is And wanna
0: rally behind them.
1: That's full effect, totally working there.
0: Yeah, as soon as they say, I'm nervous,
1: it's like, oh that's right that's right so we've experienced that now as an audience member and we've probably also experienced it as the speaker people don't need to hear your inner dialogue they want to hear the message that you've come to uh, come to share and I've I've seen this recently with a few people who are blogging and sometimes I feel like they're giving too much information and so it starts to you know, can make you think, oh, this person doesn't have the competence to do whatever services that I want them to do. What do you mean they're, they're
0: giving too much information about
1: themselves? Too much, or? yeah, too much of the inner dialogue. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, particularly in, if I think in a business situation, if you're publishing information about your ideas, it's fine to have errors or imperfections, but I think sometimes going too far into the inner dialogue You know, I go, how valuable is that to the reader? And to me, that's something that is, that's the battle we're having with our own perfectionism or imperfectionism and blah, it comes out here and it actually doesn't need to.
0: So I'm balancing this up with what Brene Brown advocates in terms of vulnerability and stuff. So where do you sit in relation to her principles of sharing your feelings as an act of strength?
1: Um, Yeah, Sure. Sure, but um, there's also that belief about you know not sort of letting that <laughs> like bleed out over everybody as uh, <laughs> you know day after day, meeting after meeting. Vulnerability is you know is one thing, but an incredible cloud of doom. I mean, nah, not, not really <laughs> helpful. Come back to it. We've still got to be you know still have to be a leader.
0: Yeah, I call that a water bomber—somebody who shows yeah. up with their emotions unleashed. That's it, and they that's just go bleh over everybody. That's all. That's okay. All. I totally so.
1: adore Brené's work and have quoted her several times in in my books. So uh, and seen her, I think she's awesome. So I'm not countering her views. What I'm talking more about is this—the inner dialogue connected to perfectionism, yeah—and and how we sometimes. <clears throat> put it all out there and it's not (laughs) in an effort sound effects (laughs) uh, it's an absolute demonstration of perfectionism coming out your mouth it didn't need to come out
0: yeah okay because yeah okay that makes a lot more sense now uh clarifying that sort of that inner narrative about needing to be perfect and making apology for it so this big shift for you from perfectionism to Ishmeister yeah. can even be a like, meister of ish. I isch. don't know, probably. <laughs> ish practitioner maybe? Yeah. Than a meister. Cause that implies perfectionism in the ish <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, have you ever had any other major changes of perspective where you've spun
1: on your view of yourself or the world?
0: And if so, what happened?
1: Um, I've I've had had a couple of years of illness, so in the last few years, so that that's definitely been a, a spinner for me. Is to go wow, I was worrying a whole lot about stuff that is so just so doesn't matter, and so I think I've come back and come through that with uh, with a perspective of of not oh you get another chance, but um, you know what? Is that really what you want to do? <laughs> is that is that really worth your time and effort? I was talking to someone recently. They said um, their daughter spends eighteen hours a week doing their eyebrows. What so, uh, eyebrows are? a real thing right 18 18 hours 18 hours a week on her eyebrows I I said you could what do you even do for 18 hours with your eyebrows (laughs) you could you could run a startup a side hustle in 18 hours you know you could be learning a whole new thing you could be doing incredible stuff in that time and so for me I go that does that matter do I want to be known as oh my god you know Lynn was here with us for many years but now you know today we're farewelling her and what what do you say? Wow, we, she didn't do much, but gee, she had great eyebrows. Like, what, <laughs> what do you what do you want to be known for? You know what what do you want to what legacy do you want to leave? And this is gonna bother
0: me now all day. <laughs> like eyebrows, eighteen hours a week on freaking eyebrows.
1: Yeah, yeah, so that's about yeah. So she's spending about two hours a day on them. So that's in the morning, like plucking, shaping, feathering, painting, combing. And not just once during the day, but then, you know, attending to them again later in the day and again later in the day. So this parent said, I just would like you to tally how much time you're spending on this. That's perfectionism around the way we look. Oh, my Lord. So, yeah. having so So my pivot around is that stuff matters so much less than we believe it does.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I had also I mean, I went through cancer in 2005. And that was a, a pivot point for me as well. It does sort yeah. of make you shift your priorities. Yes. I think the trick to to capitalizing on such life events, <laughs> making use of them is to remember them. And I, yeah. think, I don't know yeah. if you've had this experience, too, since you've had an illness and a shift in perspective, I can fall back into old patterns, too. And so I think uh, the whole point of having a book like Ish out is to stand by a principle and to remind yourself, daily that this is what you are operating against as opposed to by default or by that sort of inner narrative that can take over that you need to spend hours looking after
1: eyebrows or Uh, whatever thing is going on for you vacuuming you know i've got a neighbor down the road i'm just forever hearing her vacuum going i know she's (laughs) forever vacuuming (laughs) come over to my place you know it's like that'll do right? Totally ish that stuff. Totally ish it. I'd say outsource that thing. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Well, I think that's a really good takeaway for, uh, for the listeners is to evaluate what it is you're actually doing and spending yeah. your time on. But yeah. I think for me also, it's where you're spending your inner thinking energy yes. on. Cause I yes, find true. I've been paying attention more of that lately and going, how much time am I wasting? Thinking about breakfast <laughs> and dinner, and what's the right ratio of carbs to fat to protein? And I'm like, oh my God, there's a whole cluster of thinking that goes and wasted yes. brain space in that. Yeah. 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 So, the, yeah, I think we can waste time doing, we can waste time and energy
1: thinking as well. Yeah. There's that internal load of, uh, I'm working on it, or, you know, I was mentoring some uh, small group recently, and they said, we're deciding. And I went, your decision's usually a thing. You know, you must still be either thinking about it or researching or gathering information. Why are you still mulling over whatever this decision is that needs to be made? Oh, we're still deciding what it is. I said, well, how about let's make a decision and then then see how we go with that. So that was taking up an incredible amount of time for that small team gathering, weighing up alternatives, doing pros and cons lists. This is a behavior known as maximizing, and it's uh, totally aligned with perfectionist behavior. So um, a friend of mine was recently wanting to get a new microwave. And so they, um, six months, oh, sorry, it wasn't a microwave. It was a dishwasher, a family of four, and they'd spent six months hand washing dishes because she hadn't had time to sit down and work out which was the best dishwasher to get. And that is a total <laughs> example of what's called this maximising behaviour. So she was procrastinating, again, a perfectionist behaviour. So procrastinating on the information, procrastinating on the decision, hadn't got enough information yet. And what happened was her partner said, no, we're going to the shop right now. And they drove down to the shop and they made a decision in 15 minutes and then they had the dishwasher installed the following, the following couple of days so all that time all those six months where that was this load in their mind of the dishwasher you know we've got to sit down and make that decision no no you can actually make it a lot quicker than you think
0: i think if you weigh up the consequences of the decision that should determine how much energy you put into yeah into analyzing it you know consequences (laughs) of dishwasher purchase relatively low on the (laughs) on the consequence scale i'm guessing the bigger picture of things yeah
1: Yeah, but it's an an example, Uh, most of us would have an example of the dishwasher story in our life where we're taking forever to make a decision, we're gathering more information and that's this maximising behaviour, whereas we need to go for what's called satisficing. Uh, Herbert Simon, an economist, talks about um, satisficing, that is you find something that is satisfactory and will suffice. You can hear it in the word satisfice. I'm trying and to that's write it. Satisficing, facing, and that's what ish is all about. Awesome. Yeah.
0: All right. So, last minute or ending summary point of uh, suggestion for the
1: listeners. What have you got? What have I got? I would, I would say, if you're if you're feeling overwhelmed and you think you've got lots of things on, that the idea of being able to do more is overwhelming, then you might have a p perfectionism behavior going on somewhere just stop for a moment scan across the things that you're working on and really think at any of those do i think they're not good enough yet and that's a that's a sign a a sign that you're
0: suffering from
1: perfectionism yeah it is a suffer we are suffering yeah i
0: agree i think talking with you has made me feel so much better about the day
1: oh good (laughs) it's making me feel better about the day too good to hear (laughs) Thanks so much, Lynn. You've been awesome. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks.